Hello, welcome to the Cosmic Creating Show, and uh, I'm your host, Jan Moore, and it's January the 20th, 2018. I can't believe how quickly this first month of 2018 is going. So I'm the Success Alchemist, and you can find out more about me at thesuccessalchemist.net. And today I have a wonderful guest with me, um, the Reverend Pamela Mann. And I've got to know Pamela over the last few weeks, actually, and it's a real joy to have her on the show to share with you some amazing work that she does. So she's actually an ordained interfaith and interspiritual minister and a Reiki master. Pamela incorporates aspects of the Christian, Buddhist, Native American, earth-based and shamanic religions and spiritual practices into her work as a healing arts minister. She creates customized wedding ceremonies and provides premarital and spiritual coaching to her clients. She also offers customized baby blessings, house clearings and celebration of life ceremonies. Believe it or not, on top of all of that, Pamela also teaches meditation, meditative painting and uses a variety of healing modalities, including crystal healing in her work with clients. And it's just such an amazing portfolio of offerings you have, Pamela. So I can't wait to share all that with our listeners. So welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here today. Excellent. And we're excited to have you, Pamela. So what I like to do with my guests is really get a story about how you came to be doing what you're doing. So perhaps you'd share with that with us first, Pamela. Um, okay. I think I started out actually with doing the artwork, not realizing that it was, you know, therapeutic or or turning into what it is now, but it was just a way that I could always express myself. And it started when I was having issues in my first marriage and I needed a positive outlet to channel my anger so that I wouldn't take it out on my family because I didn't think it was fair to them. And so that's where it all kind of began when I started realizing that there is just different ways to heal oneself other than going to a traditional therapist, which I did do, but that didn't seem to, the talk therapy wasn't working for me. Mm -hmm. How long ago was that, Pamela? That was in the um, Mm mid-90s. And and then later in, in 1998, I discovered the labyrinth, which is a uh, meditation tool. And primarily the ones that I worked with at the very beginning were ones that you physically walk them. And um, that was my other gateway into all of the work that I do now is I found communities and people that were connected to the healing arts through the labyrinth. And it's basically a, um, it's a form of a mandala, which is a um, sacred image or symbol, and it is used for meditation. And it um, originated, I don't know, probably 5,000 or so years BC. And then it first came into the churches in 1200s. And so it's been used by cultures all across the world and every society and culture. And that was my first exploration into um, meditation as well. And that was also I ha- how I found um, 
practitioners who were energy workers and people who work with crystals and how I found shamans. I mean, it was just like, it opened up the entire world for me. And that was, <laughs> it was like, you know, putting on glasses and taking off side blinders for the first time. Yeah, it sounds like you were really led to all these different modalities to really come to be fulfilling your purpose. Yes, yes, one step at a time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And what did you do before this, Pamela? Uh, I was a stay-at-home mom. Mm -hmm. um, and before that, I was uh, a manager in retail clothing and at a bank. And then I, you know, decided that staying home with family was the most important thing. Mm -hmm. But that was where I started to really explore the other possibilities for me. And I actually started taking classes so that I could know what I was going to do once my children left home. Um, I became a mother when I was 23, so I knew I still had years ahead of me once my children were gone of what am I going to do when I grow up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I like it. So um, you started with the artwork. Um, yes. What actually led you to become ordained? I was heavily involved in um, just about every aspect of being a church volunteer that I could be as a lay person. And I found that to be very rewarding and satisfying. And it was a great way for me to stay connected with people um, other than just staying at home and playing with dust bunnies. <laughs> and um, I was able to also learn a lot about contemplative prayer practices at my church. And that was just, a, it was just like a starting off point. And I was in a Bible study group and we um, spent more time in circle than, you know, each verse. But I, it was there that I discovered that I had this gift for interpreting the scriptures and it's also where the, through the volunteer work, I did a lot of service projects and working with other people. And that was where I started to get the inkling that maybe God's higher plan for me is to go into ministry. Um, I was currently in the Episcopal Church and they were still just getting on board with having women as ministers and priests. And so um, I was a little hesitant there and I just kept searching for the right place for me to go to go into ministry. Um, when I was at the Episcopal Church, one of the programs that gave me the call and the answer of do I become a minister was when I worked with Stephen's ministry, which is a form of pastoral care done by lay members of the congregation. And it was on a labyrinth walk, actually, after I had joined that program that I heard the call from God to say, you need to become a minister. Mm, interesting. I'd like to just pick up on that subject of the labyrinth again, because I've, I was introduced to um, the concept of the labyrinth uh, back in about 2010, 11. I think it was. It was uh, somebody I got to know up in Evergreen, Colorado, outside Denver, when I was um, organizing the Festival of Enlightenment. And he had a labyrinth in his uh, on his property. But I've never really got familiar with how that labyrinth actually creates this this, I guess, sacred space, sacred energy. Could you just 
tell us a bit about that? Certainly, I would love to. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. Oh, good. <laughs> um, I'm going to give a real brief, in a nutshell, what it does. Um, it's, like I said, mostly primarily used as a tool, as a walking meditation tool, but there are also ones that are you can use on a handheld one where you can walk with your finger um, so that if you're not comfortable walking or if you're not able to walk, you can still enter into this meditative process. And the whole premise of it is that it looks sort of like a maze, but it's not a maze because there are no false turns or dead ends in there. And so, you know, mazes are meant to use your mind to trick you and to, you know, be logical and, and figure your way out of it. And the purpose for the labyrinth is to actually calm your mind and quiet down the chatter in your mind, which then enables you to tap into your higher self and listen to your spirit and then also receive guidance for, from God, spirit, your creator, whatever your higher power might be. And the way that it works is that you have an entrance point and you will follow the entire pattern around and then you will eventually end up in the center. And then once you go to the center, that is a place where you can pause and reflect and listen. And then as you come back, you can contemplate what you're going to do with the insight and the information that you may have received and how you're going to carry that out into the world and then move it forward. And what happens is when you leave the center, you walk back out of the, the design that you walked into and you will exit in the very same place that you started. Mm, so it's kind of a, an environment for contemplation, is it? Yes, yes. It is actually considered a contemplative prayer practice. And... Um, and it is meant to do slowly. And what it does is it, it quiet the, the trip into the center quiets your mind down so that you can listen once you get to the center and then, and then you take that out. Um, but yes, it is definitely a contempla contemplative prayer practice. And I have seen people, you know, and I have walked thousands of walks and everyone is different because the labyrinth meets you where your spiritual needs are in that day and in that moment. And that's the beauty of it is that um, and it's also a nonverbal and it can be private and then it can also be public. You might be walking with others, but even as you're sharing this, this sacred space with others, you're still having a private walk, even though you're on this, you know, walk with others. And the, the beauty of that is it's a metaphor for your life. So anything that comes up and whatever your experience is on the labyrinth, it reflects something that's happening in either your physical life or your inner landscape. So is there a, a set structure to this? I just brought up on Google while you were speaking mm -hmm. uh, some Im images and, you know, some of them I'm familiar with. They're kind of the... Um, concentric circles with like they're almost like um pizza <laughs> sections <laughs> right you know the triangles and and yet there are others that are quite different from that what what determines the design of a, a labyrinth um well the main thing is that it's a unicrossal path which is what i was talking about earlier where you have an entrance and then it, you only have one path into the circle and then the same one back out. That's the main thing. Um, 
it's up to the individual design and designer and inspiration as to how the, the design pattern comes out. There are two basic designs. There's one called a seven circuit or the classical or Cretan labyrinth. And that's the one that looks kind of like an oblong round circle. And it kind of looks like almost like a mushroom, you know, just for what the shape of it would look like. That's the most ancient form, and that's where you can find pictures of those in caves and carved in rocks. And then the other ones where you have the more concentric circles that look more like the pizza, that form took shape when um, the labyrinths entered into the churches, and that is based on sacred geometry. Right. Okay. I get that. Yes. In fact, I was having a conversation with a friend yesterday about sacred geometry. So, mm -hmm. <clears throat> Okay, and you actually create labyrinths, do you not, in the work that you do with clients? Yes, um, I have actually walked labyrinths with clients before um, and walked with them, especially when I'm introducing the labyrinth to them and they're trying to process something. This is just another way to process. And then there have been times that I have um, held, sat and held the space and prayed while somebody walked and you can set an intention and, and decide and ask a question to creator or to God. There's something that you're seeking an answer for. And um, as you walk, you open yourself up to receive the guidance and the answer for that. And sometimes I hold the space for someone who's walking. And then after they complete their walk, then we will have a counseling session or, you know, a conversation based on what, their intuition was or what came up for them um, during their walk. And that is a great way to work with someone. And I've worked with people in groups and individually with the labyrinth. Um, I also sometimes use the labyrinth as a way to join groups together before we start one of our meditative painting exercises or the soul collage exercises. Um, it's just a way, a great way to get everybody joined into the same mind and the same consciousness. Mm, lovely. So it's kind of creating that sacred space. Yes, yes. And it is, and the entire labyrinth is a sacred space because it's, it's got a defined border and perimeter there. And so that is a very, very sacred container. And I have seen labyrinths in churches. I have seen them in parks. I've seen them on beaches. I've seen them in hospitals. I have seen them, you know, randomly just kind of run into them in some places. And they are used in the secular world as well as in the spiritual world and as well as in the religious world. Mm, and it's all reminiscent to me of um, some of the crop circles that you see. Yes, yes, not quite as elaborate, but yes, very much kind of like that, yeah. Yeah, I've just, I just searched for that as well, and, and a, a bunch of images have come up actually for labyrinth crop circles, interestingly. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. And again, that links back to the sacred geometry that's so evident in a lot of the, the crop circles that appear. And I'm always oh, yeah. fascinated by the fact that so many are in England and around um, the location of Stonehenge, which is really interesting because I think that goes back to these energy points of the ley lines um, yeah. in certain areas. So fascinating stuff. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 
And the the labyrinths, you know, they accrete their they are varying opinions as to where the first one was found because they keep finding more and more evidence of it. Um, so I think they had some of the more original ones were somewhere in, in Africa. And then I believe that the next ones were found in Italy and a couple other places. I, it's been a while since I researched the history, so I don't want to, I don't want to tell anybody something that's not correct. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I was on mute there for a second. Um, <laughs> I was going to go back to, um, where we were talking about you being ordained and you actually have done a lot of work with the unity church correct correct then i currently attend unity of fredericksburg mm, so what was it that attracted you to the unity uh, church i really liked the unity church because of the metaphysical interpretation of the bible that they have it's just a very very different perspective of the um New Testament in particular, and Jesus is their way shower, and they focus more on the divine aspects in Jesus and the Christ consciousness. And we do work with Jesus, the human, but we focus more on the metaphysical and the, the Christ consciousness part of God. So is it an approach that that is um, similar to what I found in a, when I read A Course in Miracles, because that struck me as very much that, you know, rather than Jesus being uh, someone to worship as this, you know, supreme being, that he was represented more as bringing an example of what we're all capable of. And he was just demonstrating. Uh, and I think I don't know the exact quote from the bible but it was something like you know you you're capable of doing all of this and more and and the concept of the children of god rather than him as the only son of god absolutely yes in fact many unity churches um use material from the course of miracles in the sermons and then often many unity churches actually have classes on course of miracles and that is very much in alignment with um, unity principles and beliefs. Mm. And the other thing I like about unity is that unity also is open and inclusive to the other world's religions and other perspectives that resonate and vibrate at the same level of consciousness. And that is something that has attracted me to the unity churches and kept me there because they really are open and accepting of anyone that comes to them. Mm, and, I really like that because, you know, I mentioned in your introduction that, you know, you're, you incorporate aspects of these other philosophies, Buddhist and the Native American and sh shamanism and so on. And I must say that's been on my spiritual journey you know i i was brought up a christian in church of england and it never actually reson never resonated with me the kind of conventional religion approach and then i was drawn to look into reincarnation and the buddhist um philosophy around that and really being led to you know Taoism and uh 
those kind of Eastern philosophies that to me were really giving the same core message, just being delivered in different ways. And um, so I, I, I'm, I'm very much on the same <laughs> wavelength with you there in terms of rather than being absolutely, this is the only path to whatever enlightenment, uh, but so there's so much wisdom in so many of these different philosophies. Yes, there is. And it's wonderful to be in an environment that is recognizing and honoring of so many different um, religions or thoughts of mind that really have the same message, except they just have a different language and a different audience that they reach out to. And I think that's the beauty of all of them, because, you know, God chooses to use people in different ways because one person wouldn't be understood or resonate or be heard by every single person. So there have been so many different leaders and religions so that they can be understood and heard by the appropriate people to reach all. Yes. And I think that's, I think that's true of a lot of things, actually, you know, I'm not, I'm not a guru worshiper at all because, you know, I'll, I'll, um, you know, I'm an avid learner and reader and uh, and so on. But there are things that I guess I, you know, this has been something about my intuition that I didn't recognize for a long time. But there'll be certain things that will resonate, which I'll take uh, take with me and other things that mm, not too sure about that. You know, I'm not really I have a different perspective on it. And I think this is this is uh, the thing about, you know, when I'm working with people in business, it's like, you know, why would anybody hire me? You know, because there's lots of other people out there doing, in effect, in, in terms of the title, the same thing as me. But we bring our own perspective and our own experiences to whatever we do that makes it unique. And and that is the value that the right people get from what we are um, providing for them. Absolutely. I think I got us off the subject a bit there, but never mind. Okay. <laughs> so what are the particular, um, what, what appeals to you in these other um, philosophies, you know, because we're talking quite um, diverse here. I mean, Buddhist, you know, the Eastern and then Native American here, of course, and uh, shamanism actually originated, I believe, in Eastern Europe to a, to a large extent. So is there any key thread running through these for you? For me, there's a couple of different things. One is they all focus on meditation and different forms of meditation. And um, I like the ones that involve a lot of silence and listening. Um, that has been really helpful for me since my mind is very, very active. And any time I have the opportunity for it to actually get quiet, I enjoy that. Um, so that's one of the things. And the other thing is all of the other religions are so ancient. And, you know, there's a reason why two, five thousand years or however many years it's been that there are still practice principles that are being practiced today, which tells me that there is wisdom there. And, you know, in my dreams, I keep in some of my drawings, I keep getting east meets west. And I've 
questioned that, and I just think that a lot of those practices were actually adapted in some way into some of the Western practices, but I think they came from the Eastern. That's my own belief. I'm <laughs> not, you know, quoting a textbook there, but that's the one thing that I really like about it, and I like the honoring the fact that there is some of the um, different Eastern religions don't have a specific image or face of God. And that kind of opens things up for me by not God having a face, but knowing God is much larger by having this energetic presence is very, very comforting and soothing to me only because I was raised up in some very conservative Christian religions where my, my first images of God were not always of the loving, compassionate God that we have. Mm, no, more and of the judgment Seat yes. of judgment, yes. Yes, and so that's probably one of the main reasons why I was drawn to some of the other religions was to be able to take God out of the box and to have a different experience of God so that I can connect with and relate with other people. One of the things that I learned when I walked the labyrinth was I started meeting people from the other world's religions and how diverse Almost every area and city is now because, you know, just the way that the world has has the population has grown. And I wanted to be able to connect and relate to people of those other religions if I didn't understand them. And if I learned about them, then I wouldn't be afraid to connect and interact with them or work with them. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, what you were saying about, you know, some of the Eastern philosophies, religions being so ancient, I... Um, as I say, I was led in t along this path, you know, through the um, Buddhist re reincarnation belief. And also I read the Tao Te Ching and started doing I Ching readings. And that was fascinating because I I'm not an expert. I don't claim to be an expert, but it was interesting how the I Ching hexagrams are linked to, there are 64 hexagrams, which is the same as the number of chromosomes that we have. And it's like it, it became, um, you know, it's interesting for me to see the links between the philosophy and the human in terms of who we are as physical beings. And I then got led on to looking into Jovian archive, human design, which actually incorporates aspects of the I Ching in this personality profiling. And I think the more that you you delve into these things, the more fascinating it becomes to see the connections. Absolutely. And that's also where the sacred geometry and the sacred artwork has also come from. And, you know, the, this actually came, the sacred geometry and some of the sacred images came before the written word when mm. there was no documentation. And, and so that is another reason why I really resonate with some of the Eastern um, cultures because of that. And, you know, even the Native American takes a lot of its spirituality very much parallels some of the Eastern religions, too, but they have their own interpretation in their own you know path within that but um they're very i've as i have studied the rituals and gone through some of the ceremonies i have learned that you know it's it's very very similar and very close mm. so you were saying about 
really liking the um, the meditation that um, the meditative approaches to these different philosophies. And you're saying about it, it really focused around silence. What about the Buddhist chanting? Is that something that you believe in um, in incorporating, or is that something that you don't actually? Oh, I actually do love Buddhist chanting because the chanting is another way for you to leave your logical mind and it takes you into this transient state where you are, um, again, your, your thoughts get quieted down because you can't be thinking about your grocery list when you're chanting sacred words and mm. they're sacred words connected to creator or to God or whatever you want to call your higher power. Um, I love the chants. And then the beauty in that is that, one, they're sacred words, and two, there's a repetitiveness to it. And traditionally, the chants are said or chanted or spoken 108 times. That's a very sacred number in the Buddhist tradition. And I love the chanting. And it has been very, very helpful for me. And it also the chanting are some very primal sounds. And when you are doing the chanting, it actually works with vibrations in your body and it helps to align your chakras and to align the energy in your body. And I have um, noticed the effects of when I chant and when I don't within my body. Mm, yeah, the kind of sound healing mm-hmm. um, effect. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, and um, I know watching uh, one of my favorite movies is The Last Samurai. And, of course, that's it's mainly set in Japan. And there's the chanting and the om. And it, it's just so, uh, um, I don't know how to, it's almost primordial, isn't it, the sound that uh, that you get from that. Yes, it is. I believe it's one of the first sounds that there is. And there is, I can't remember which one of the Sanskrit drawings, but there's a Sanskrit drawing that is actually the sound om in a visual form. Um, I wish I had done my research on that one a little bit more so I knew exactly which one it is. But um, yes, the it's amazing how the vibration of the different sounds um, turn into an art form and then that turns into other sacred forms. And that's again, the draw and the attraction to some of the Eastern traditions. Mm. Do you use sound in any of your healing sessions? Typically not. I don't tend to do that. I usually do that in group meditation. We'll usually start with an ohm or end with an ohm. However, I do have a crystal bowl that is attuned to the throat chakra. And I will frequently begin my Reiki sessions with that so that it kind of opens up the chakras for the healing to occur. And I also have a Ting Sha, which is like another type of chime that I use. I am interested in tuning forks because I've had that done with me and that also works on the vibrations in your body and clearing them and aligning them. I just haven't gotten that one yet. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. I have yeah. a good friend who uh, is uh, a sound healer and she works. She's actually a harpist. And but she also uh, uses the Tibetan bowls and mm-hmm. tuning forks and so on. So I must get her on the show sometime. Oh, <laughs> Interest- yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, I um, 
I had a, a very impromptu meeting with a, a friend last night. It was so funny. I was on my way back from Durango and I got this phone call from a guy who actually spoke at the festival in 2011. He's a feng shui expert and he also designs eco-friendly um, um homes and properties and and so on and he just called me and I said can I call you back so I'm just driving back from Durango and he said well so am I and I say what because <laughs> he lives in Sedona he was actually on his way from Sedona to Denver and happened to be literally less than five minutes behind me <laughs> we ended up having dinner together and it turned out that he and this sound healer who is another Pamela believe it or not Pamela Hughes had been connected for for quite some time and I'd got to know her and built the website for her so it was like all these things are converging at the moment bringing these different people together and uh, I find it really fascinating the way <laughs> the universe works you know so uh yeah, yeah I, absolutely and, and, <laughs> and even the way we were brought together pamela <laughs> yeah definitely i know I, it was from someone else just through a conversation i was talking about being you know anxious about upgrading my website and doing copy and she's like i know the perfect person for you <laughs> <laughs> which was lovely yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the rest is history as they say um, Absolutely. So let's just, uh, I'd love to um, delve a little bit more into the meditation classes and, and particularly what you do around the meditative painting, because I think that is, you know, that is a different approach to meditation. So would you like to just describe that and also explain how that can work well for people that struggle with conventional meditation? Sure. I'm one of these per people that um, I'm very, very visual. Even when I have meditations, I have images come up into my third eye area and I, or within my mind. I just, life without color would be really, really boring and not very fun for me. And I'm one of these people, I love to meditate, but sometimes sitting still, I just get too antsy and I need to be moving. And so if I'm going to be moving, I would like to be imprinting into my cellular memory something that is positive. And so for me, it's very, again, the whole idea of, of meditating with painting is for me to get out of my logical mind and the monkey chatter and to Paint in a meditative state is another way for me to quiet my mind. And when my mind relaxes, my entire body relaxes. And I don't, I still experience difficulty sometimes getting my body to relax. So sometimes this is the only way I can relax. And so, and I, and I like to paint. It's just one of the ways that I feel like I connect to God and I also connect to my inner voice that Sometimes just I can't can't reach that voice writing. Sometimes I can't get to it. And sometimes it's just the only way I can really, really listen to my soul. Mm. It's a, interesting. What came to mind when you were describing that is um, one of the things that Eckhart Tolle talks about is about how immersing yourself in something 
actually takes you to a much higher level of of quality of what you do and that's very much about you know practicing awareness self-awareness being in the moment etc etc and um an indication of um there's there's various other um theories about how being in the flow is actually part an inherent part of being truly successful and and fulfilling your purpose and so on and i found you know i joke about um when i have my horses in england particularly you know mucking out is the new meditation and <laughs> i ironing is a meditative thing because it's something where you're doing something physically but you don't have to engage your brain in it and it's almost like it opens the space for all these different thoughts and ideas and inspirations to come to you and I've I I I have this approach you know where I believe in integrating practices so you know I often use the example that you know spiritual people are not necessarily conscious because there are some people who are spiritual who go to church on a Sunday and they go through their service and then when they leave that they return to an unconscious way of living it's like they're not embodying the philosophy or the principles of that spiritual uh, ceremony in their day-to-day life and to me it's the same with meditation you know I feel as though yes we do it's great to take some time out to meditate but I talk about having developed being being able to maintain a meditative state literally in your day-to-day life through and you know i teach mindfulness but i joke about calling it mindlessness the ability to just wipe out the noise and just hold space in your mind you know and that's a practice that is rather like meditation but it can be done in the supermarket it can be done driving in traffic you know and that brings that that peace that inner peace and that feeling of that you're in in charge of your um environment your outcomes and everything yes and that's one of the reasons why i like it and that's why i see it as a spiritual practice um some people it is their spiritual practice and it is becoming my spiritual practice because it is just a way for me to open up and to create something and to listen to you know within and listen to what creator has one of the things i like about the meditative painting is there's a couple of things one is that i like to set an intention when i do it or perhaps again have a question that i would like to have answered and i may get that answer but then i will ask for a symbol to be given to me so that when i come out of that experience we all forget we all sometimes start to lapse back into not being conscious but when i look at this painting i can remember that sacred time and space and it supports me by having that reminder and it takes me back into that meditation just by looking at the symbol and it's very supportive and the other thing is is that you know sometimes I write my intentions on my canvas or the paper if I'm using pencils. And so the energy of what you are 
your intention is and you want to support you in your environment is infused into the canvas. And then I like to pray as I paint. So then the energy of my prayers are going into the paint. And then once it's finished, that energy is still vibrating into my room and still supporting me on whatever it is that my prayer was for that day and for that painting. And that's why I like it. And that's why I want to share this with other people because the paintings sometimes don't look like something that would go in an art gallery, but they are priceless and press, you know, priceless and very, very precious to me because of the meaning that goes into it. Mm, and it's, it, 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 it sounds almost like you're anchoring that energy in in physical form by using painting yes it's exactly what's happening and by the motion the repetitive motion from painting or you know drawing coloring whatever that helps get it into your cellular memory which does you know put that into your body and i am all about putting positive energy into my body and and it's also a way for me like if i'm angry instead of going out and breaking a glass or something like that I put my energy into the paint and it has transformed from something that I perceive as negative into positive energy because once I've channeled this, this anger and then all of a sudden I see this beautiful piece of artwork, that's a reminder to me that life can be transformed and it can change in a moment. Mm. Yes. And, and again, that everything is energy. <laughs> yes. Yes. And that is, you know, how I survived, you know, a couple of my divorces rather than take things out on my ex-spouse to be or anybody else. I just decided to channel it in and work through that process through the painting or the drawing. And it was very, very, very transformative and very helpful. And then it was also something that I could do with my children. And and explain what I was doing to them, or even if I didn't explain what I was doing to them, at least I was teaching them that they had options for their anger management or for whatever is going on, that they had another way to process. Mm. And, you know, just going back to what you were saying about writing your intention on the canvas, we've got so um, involved with technology these days, you know, when I'm, when I'm suggesting journaling or, um, actually doing some what I call stream of consciousness writing, actually doing it, you know, pen and paper or pencil and paper to me is connecting them directly with that expression of what it is that needs to come out rather than it's almost like technology can get between us and the, the message because of the it's almost like it, it, it's putting an energy field between the two by using technology. Yes, and that is pretty much the same thing with the painting. It's just a different form other than the writing, but it's the same thing. Mm. And do people, um, I guess people come to you because they're, you know, the idea of, of doing meditative art is fits with their visual nature do people get self-conscious about what they're producing or is they just let go of that kind of uh, uh, approach um, some people have a trouble letting go of that but other people are looking for something that they don't have to judge and just something where they can just you know 
do this and they may never share it with anybody, but just something that they can create that is their own, that it doesn't, that they know it's not going to be judged because I don't judge those who come to me or the outcome of their artwork. I don't say this is beautiful or, and I don't say this is not beautiful. I just honor what was created. Hmm. That's lovely. Yes. A safe space for them to express themselves. Yes. And frequently people who take classes with me often don't allow themselves permission to take a sacred safe space or time out to nurture themselves. And this is part of that is the painting creates a space and I create the space and then hold that space for them and give them permission to do this work. Hmm. And the nice thing about it, too, is, you know, I can have a very I can do it in a place where, you know, it's a very sacred space already. But like just yesterday, I went to an office where we went into a conference room. I brought in a candle and a stone and then we had our markers. And because we prayed in and set our intention and, and then lit the candle, we turned an ordinary space into a sacred space in a matter of two minutes and we held that space for about an hour and a half. And then after it was done, it was transformed back into the everyday space. Mm, that's lovely. Yes. And I know when I was traveling around a lot, um, staying in hotels and things, I would have this little um, altar set almost of <laughs> things that I would set up, you know, and, and I, I love burning incense and what have you and it i think it is you can you can change the energy of a space can't you through your intention and certain uh, it's almost like symbolic things that say okay now this is your role space <laughs> mm -hmm, absolutely and it's so funny you mentioned that because i have a traveling altar that i take me with me to a hotel and if i forget to pack it I go on a walk and I find things for my walk and then I take one of the nightstands and turn that into my little mini altar to hold space. <laughs> yes, and I yeah. take the cloth and throw it over the TV set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I went through a phase of finding feathers everywhere. And <gasps> yeah, that hasn't happened so much recently. But I'm now back to collecting stones again <laughs> and stones will kind of jump out at me, you know, and usually there's the, the crystalline, you know, mm -hmm. so um, I'm amassing more stones on my little altar as well. And I've got various crystals and things. I'm certainly not an um, I'm not that familiar with crystals and the properties, but I just like to have certain ones around and I've also got some that are you know protection against negative energies and so on so um so that's a good segue into your crystal healing as well because this is a modality that you use when you're working with people isn't it yes it is um go on I was going to say what what determines how you choose what is appropriate for different people? Do they come to you and say, you know, I'd really like crystal healing or do you kind of prescribe certain approaches based on intuition, on what their issues are? How do you actually decide on the best approach for them? I use my intuition. Um, for example, I don't, 
I have a couple of the Bibles with me. I don't have all of the properties of all of them memorized because I love all of them and I see and I play with them, but I just use my intuition. For my Reiki clients, I actually have a set of rock, of crystals that are attuned to the chakras and they are underneath my table and they are in the areas where approximately where their chakras would be. So that as I'm doing the Reiki with them, they're actually getting a boost of energy from those stones. If it is someone that I know resonates with stones, sometimes I will listen and I have stones on my altar in my healing room and I will grab a stone and actually place that on a, a part of their body where they may need the extra support as I'm working on other areas of their body. But it's really, for me, it's just really through my intuition as to what to work with. I tend to work with um, quartz and selenite, amethyst, turquoise, malachite, um, kyanite. Those are like some of my, my, my go-tos for just about everything, sometimes a little bit of jade and tourmaline um, and then you know from there a lot of times sometimes I go into meditation and then I will ask what the stone is that I need to recommend to the person and sometimes it's a matter of just carrying a stone in their pocket and then other times it's having it in their work environment so it it, it varies as to how I use the the crystal healing with others so is that learning about crystals and the chakras, is that part of the Reiki training or is it something that you did separately from that? It's something that I did separately. Um, I have, I had a, a, a mentor that actually taught a, a class on healing with crystals and she also did energy work and I did not train with her for Reiki, but I trained with, trained with her for some other energy techniques. And that was where I learned to use the, the crystals with the Reiki at the same time. Right. So you were combining two approaches together in effect. Yes, hmm. that's true. And, and I usually have some sort of stone on my body at all times, whether it's in a necklace or if it's tucked in a pocket or into a part of my clothing, I almost always have them on me because they help me to stay focused. They help me to stay grounded. And there are certain stones that help with certain ailments. So before I went through menopause, I actually had moonstones and would carry them in my pants pockets so that they would assist me when I was having cramps and going through my menstruation period. Um, I still love my moonstones, but now I don't need them. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, well, I've I've got into, I mean, uh, I've been wearing shungite constantly, which is the mineral that Nancy's nonprofit is getting out to the world because of its um, amazing healing and cleansing properties. So I've, I've had that on my person constantly for probably a, a good maybe three years now. <laughs> and I also, after um, breaking up, separating from my husband last year, um, actually felt I was getting some negative energy being sent my way. So I got some black tourmaline and some green aventurine. And I discovered that the green aventurine, which I'd never heard of before, is actually linked to my um, my zodiac sign as well. So I just constantly wear these <laughs> and I have um, some Labradorite, uh, just one 
piece of polish that I often carry in my pocket as well. So I am getting more into, you know, the various crystals and so on. It's really <laughs> nice to have them around. Oh, yes. It's, it's a journey and, and a learning. All of it is self that is 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 there's a lot to learn about them um i my first my engagement ring for a while was an amethyst because it also helps with healing physically and it also helps for addictions and also for protection mm -hmm. and i was trying to heal a couple of addictive patterns that i noticed in my life so that's why i actually got the amethyst engagement ring and it had some smoky quartz and some diamond in it, and they were all healing properties that I needed. And so I would just have a, that was like the mother load of like the perfect ring to get so <laughs> yeah. that I could be working that without really doing anything. And um, I also have shungite in my office to, because it helps absorb the negative ions from the computer. Mm hmm. And I have it also downstairs in my basement to help um, with radon gas. I mm -hmm. did some research and when I was at a, a, a rock shop out in Sedona, that was recommended to me that I get some and have that um, in the tire area where, where that was affected. So I have it in every corner in every room in my bottom level of the house. I haven't done another radon test to see what it does, but the energy feels really good by having the shungite down there. Mm, yes, and actually, I um, when I first discovered Nancy and and shungite, it was um, when I was in Austin, and when I heard, learned about the impact of um, of Wi-Fi and so on. I actually put got some what she calls a bucky bag <laughs> with the just the raw shungite nuggets and put it on the on the router and I could feel the difference in the energy in the place. It just felt smoother somehow, smoother and calmer immediately. And uh, you know I've been an absolute fan of <laughs> ever since, and I recommend it to everybody. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, really good stuff. And um, you also work on producing crystal grids. Can you just explain how they work? Sure. The crystal grids are just really another space for holding prayers and for sending positive energy out in the world. Um, and I have, and again, I use my intuition on which stones to put together and how to do it. Um, I have some pre some patterns that I have printed off the internet that have some sacred geometry properties to them. And I just use my intention to lay them out. And I set an intention what the prayer is that it's going to be holding. Um, and I have two different surfaces within my home that I set them up. And I have different prayer focuses for each one of them. And one of them is in my healing room. And I will use crystals, I will use stones, and sometimes I will incorporate uh, leaves or acorns or sticks or shells or whatever I'm guided to. There's really not a right or wrong way to create a crystal grid. There are some people that have very, very specific patterns and specific stones that they use in certain ways that they do that, but I really go by my intuition and and just kind of feel how to do that. 
All right. So there's no particular set combination of stones then or any specific shape. Do you do you draw out your own shapes and, and fit the stones into them? How do you go about it? Um, I do. I, it, get, it just kind of depends on what kind of design I get led to. Sometimes I just put all the stones into a pile and then I just start kind of playing around with them on the, the top and then use my intuition to how they do them. I like doing them with heart patterns or kind of like a Native American wheel where you've got the circle with the the four quarters drawn off mm-hmm. and work from that kind of a pattern. But there have also been times that I have had some that are kind of in the shape of a, a triangle. And sometimes I will start with a pyramid type of stone in the very, very center. I always have one one stone that's a little bit larger than the others in the center and then use the smaller stones that support to go around the other places. I use a lot of quartz points. Some of them are, I don't know where they came from. Some of them are Lumerian points and some of them come from other regions within the, within the world. And I just kind of place them in there. I like, I tend to do a lot of my grids in the shape of hearts because there is so much need right now for love to go out, universal love to go out into the hearts of everybody that that ends up being a lot of my my shapes. A lot of times my crystal grids end up also being in the shape of a figure eight because that's the infinity sign. Mm. And that's also a great healing, um, a, a great healing pattern. So a lot of times I will do that. And one of the reasons that I use the quartz is because quartz just amplifies. And so a lot of my grids will be with a heart quartz because that has a vibration of opening the heart and then surround it with the with the regular quartz parts that amplifies it and then have the point sending outward so that it's sending it out of the out of my room out into the universe. Mm. Um, I also have read that ruby and garnet are really good for um, also for the vibration of love. And I was actually even reading that those are even better for sending out the universal love than the red quartz. The rose quartz is more for the, the, the heart chakra within our bodies, but the other ones are even more powerful. Oh, right. Fascinating. Well, believe it or not, we're at the top of the first hour. (laughs) Hasn't that flown by? Yeah. So I'm going to hand back over to Nancy. She can play a little musical interlude while we take a comfort break. Thank you, Nancy. And welcome back to the Cosmic Creating Show on Cosmic Reality Radio. I'm your host, Jan Moore, the success alchemist. And today I'm interviewing the Reverend Pamela Mann, who has been sharing so much interesting information about all the services that she provides. So, Pamela, before we get into our next part of the conversation, would you like to share your contact details with our listeners so they know where to find you to get more information about what you do absolutely i have a website uh, pamelaaman.com that's p-a-m-e-l-a-a-m-a-n-n.com and i also have a web uh, have a facebook page at pamela man and i also have a reiki, pamela reiki master healing page and also Heart Star Ceremonies, which is my 
website and Facebook page geared for the customized weddings and customized celebrations and ceremonies that I officiate. Thank you. It's great. And that's a great lead into um, spending some time in this second half talking about the rituals and ceremonies that you perform. So you mentioned, first of all, customized weddings. Let's start there, shall we? Okay. <laughs> so um, what is it that that you provide for couples that come to you that want a a particular personalized approach to their marriage ceremony? Okay, I have lots to offer in that area. One being that I'm with being an interfaith minister, I studied the world's religions and so I have an understanding of their cultures and society and their ceremonies. And so frequently I find couples that don't belong to a particular church or one part, you know, one person in the couple may attend a church, but because the other person is not of that same religion or faith tradition, they are not allowed to marry in that church. And so the passion and the beauty for me is when I get couples that have different spiritual beliefs or practices or backgrounds, I customize a ceremony that reflects who they are and tailor it to meet their needs and what it is that they believe in and, and what they would like to have reflected in their ceremony. So I often will take some scriptures or some texts from each tradition and then help them customize their own vows or if they don't want to write their own vows, bring pieces of other vows where they pull bits and pieces from one and to another one that is a vow that resonates with them that is really there. So I don't just cut and paste the name into a pre for you know, preset ceremony. I actually individualize each one. Okay, that's lovely. And I guess part of this is um, when you were saying perhaps um, couples from who come from completely different cultures and come together, and, and those as well who perhaps are very spiritual but aren't necessarily religious. <laughs> and, of right. course, a lot of the ceremonies are linked to specific religions, as we were talking about before. And we were even talking about this whole thing about, you know, the the till death us do part vow, which, um, <laughs> interestingly, you know, as, a, as a, a follower of Abraham Hicks, the approach there is, well, it should be until either of the two members of that relationship feel that that relationship no longer has value for them. <laughs> Yes, and that is a mindset that I have. I, What I like about the ceremonies is we take a traditional format and then we move it around and, and tweak it to how we need it to. I tend to not use the traditional, what I call, old-fashioned language. All of the ceremonies that I create, the couples, I'm using contemporary language, and I do not use the word obey. I don't use the death till we are parted. I just, that doesn't real resonate with me either. And couples have a sacred contract with God. I don't know what that is. And it really doesn't matter to me how long a couple stays together. 
ultimately, yes, I would love them to be together for a long time, but I don't know what that sacred contract is. And having been married and divorced twice, you know, both of those, I vowed to stay married until death do us part, and that just didn't happen. It was the death of the relationship. Mm. And that was okay. And in my third marriage, I did not use that kind of language because I had learned. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, I have to say, you know, it's the same when I married my third, um, and he is now an ex. <laughs> that was actually done on Malibu Beach by a friend who was ordained or is ordained and she actually put some vows together for us which were absolutely perfect but it definitely wasn't about obeying or till till death as do part at all yeah. and you know you're saying about this sacred contract with God it's also about this soul contract between the two isn't it because um, you know I was talking earlier to a lady who um, I'm going to be appearing on her radio show and she's focused around relationships and so on. And I was saying about how I had absolute clarity on the purpose of my second and third marriage and what that they had provided for me in terms of evolutionary catalysts, as I call them. But, you know, knowing the point at which um they no longer served me and and it's like the 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 contract the purpose of that union was actually fulfilled and time to move on to to the next lesson as it were um yeah that was the case for me with both of mine as well and uh, especially on my second marriage when we decided to end the marriage. We both knew that our, our sacred contact with each other was finished and that there was no point in staying together beyond that. And it made it so much easier to go through the process and to be open to what was going to happen next, knowing that that was their sacred contract with each other. And I believe that that's, that's true for every couple. And again, I don't know what that is. Only they do and only God does. And so I, I do not judge and I do not stand in the way of that at all. Mm, absolutely. So um, just going on to what I would call the kind of traditional ceremonies, you do memorial services and baby blessings. What um, you know, in terms of memorial services, I guess that must be similar to people who um, want to have a sacred ceremony for their wedding, for their marriage that doesn't fit within a conventional church. I presume it's the same for the memorial services, is it? Uh, that is correct. The, the clients that I have had have been for people that don't have a church home. And they don't want the pre-canned offerings that the service, the funeral homes would have. And they want to have something that's a little bit more meaningful and a little bit spiritual and something that truly reflects the life of the person that we are honoring. And this necessarily wouldn't be a funeral. It's really a celebration of life and even more than, and memorials kind of go that way too. But this really is focusing on the accomplishments and the beautiful light being that this person was and really, really taking a moment to honor that of them. Mm. 
Right. So a whole different um, energy around it rather than this kind of very low frequency morning kind of service, much more of a celebration. Yes. And the, the frequency of it is a light one and and it is one that is celebratory and focusing on the positive. And I do acknowledge that this is this person has died. They're not here on the earth plane anymore, but they have moved on to their next phase of their spiritual journey and celebrate that. And again, I also customize the ceremony to reflect that person and then to also bring in elements of what their beliefs were or, you know, what their, you know, what their family was. And for example, I did my dad's ceremony, which, you know, we included a, a, photographs and I selected one of his favorite types of music to be in the background and used some of his favorite music throughout the service. So it was very, very personable and very, very uplifting to those that were in attendance. And one of the things that I offer also when I when I am the officiant at a memorial service or a celebration of life is frequently those who are asked to speak the eulogy or to share fond memories or maybe not fond memories, but share something about the person. Quite frequently, they're very upset and it's difficult for them to, to speak. So one of the things that I do is I will actually lay out a energetic um, power symbol from Reiki into the area where they are going to be standing so that when they come in here, they're to speak, they're entering into the sacred little bubble of positive energy. And if they're still having some difficulty articulating, I can actually do some Reiki on them as they're speaking. And I've had a couple people go, you know, I got up there and I didn't know what I was going to say. And I was really nervous. And then all of a sudden I got up there and everything just flowed and it was just fine. And I'm like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I do that during wedding ceremonies as well. I actually lay a portal for an energetic love portal for my couple. And then I also give myself a portal to stand in so that I'm grounded and focused on them. And again, if there might be guests who might be emotional, I can send Reiki out through my eyes so that nobody knows what I'm doing unless wow. they know I'm a Reiki master. And that's frequently why couples will come to me for the different types of ceremonies that I offer because I can incorporate it into the ceremony. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't thought about um, uh, applying it in that kind of scenario. That's brilliant. I know when I um, when my mum passed, it was it was a phenomenally impactful experience for me. And I when my stepfather passed, I, I was carrying a some guilt because um, we had all, I say we, my brothers and I and our uh, partners at the time had all been at the hospital and um, we were sent away by the nursing staff saying, uh, you know, he's, I mean, the, the, the prognosis was he wasn't going to make it, but nothing's going to happen tonight. You might as well go home. And of course, as soon as I got home, which was like 40 minutes away, the call came from my brother that he'd already passed. And it was like, you know, we'd, we'd, he'd had to be on his own without the people around him um, that were close to him. So I'd really set the intention when my mum was really ill um, that I wanted to be there. 
with her when she went, when she passed. And it was the most incredible experience because it just happened with such an incredible synchronicity that the people that were dearest to her were all there. My brother and his wife, uh, me and my husband at the time, and um, my nephew, the son of my that the brother that was present and the passing was so peaceful you almost didn't know that it had happened and that was a real lesson for me in terms of you know the nature of death I'd never been present when somebody passed before but in in that particular situation it was just an absolutely beautiful experience and I actually um gave the eulogy at the funeral service and you know I was telling stories that I remembered from childhood and everything else and it was quite interesting because my oldest brother said to me afterwards he said that story you told I didn't even remember that that had happened until you spoke about it so it was almost you know bringing back memories um, that people had completely forgotten about and and it was you know to me it seemed odd because I was grieving, for, obviously, for my mum not being around. But I was just uplifted by what I considered to be a really beautiful experience over the whole process, if you like. What a wonderful and rich experience. I have not actually had the honor of being in the room with somebody as they have transitioned. However, I have helped many people in that process leading up to it. Mm. Um, and that in itself is an honor. And the other thing that I've done is when both of my parents died, they both chose cremation. I actually went in and blessed their bodies because the soul had already left, but blessed the body and honored it and gave it gratitude and thanks for being the beautiful vessel that it was for their soul. Mm. Yes. And I felt that that was very, very important to honor the body before it was cremated. Um, and it was a really beautiful way to honor my parents and to really have that last memory of them before moving on to the service, you know, after the cremation was done. And, uh, and my, and when my mom died, she had a, a, a teddy bear that journeyed with her through being institutionalized in um, mental facilities. And I actually did the same thing with the bear and I blessed it and honored it for traveling with her. And then it was cremated with her. Mm. Yes. And I, I can't say that I consciously blessed my mother's, body uh, but you know before the service at the um at the funeral home um you know the coffin was open and i i did uh, myself and my girls actually went in there and i did feel it was like an an honoring of her you yeah. know even though her spirit had passed my brother my eldest brother just couldn't go in he couldn't actually face that you know seeing the physical body but um, interestingly, you know, just to what you were saying about, you know, the teddy bear going with her, 
I'd actually posted something on Facebook about putting together a website uh, called Beloved Animal Tributes because, you know, I'd written a tribute to my horse when I had to have him put to sleep and to my dogs. It was when I my Jack Russell was put to sleep. And I just had this idea of providing a place of people to write tributes to their animals who are so precious to us. And I'd, I'd posted recently on a, in a group, I'm in a group called Aging Horse Women. <laughs> and I'd posted this idea and they're saying, yeah, that sounds fantastic. You know, I really think it's great. And it was not just meant to be for animals that have passed or been put to sleep it's also to celebrate the role that animals play in our lives you know it can be um, therapy dogs or uh, companion animals or heroes or winners you know any of that but there are a couple of stories that that were posted in the comments about how a you know the person's dog the person who had died their dog had um had been put to sleep or had died not long before so in some cases they actually put the the ashes of the dog in with the coffin and actually buried them together and in one case even the body of the 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 dog was buried with the owner which i thought was lovely you know to to have your man's best friend as it were travel with you to the other side was a really lovely idea Oh, I think it's a wonderful idea, and I think the website is a great idea, too, because, you know, our pets really are another light being and another soul, and they're part of our families, and I think that anything that we can do for anybody other than just ourselves consciously is a beautiful gift and a beautiful gift because we are all connected, we are all part of the universe, we're all living beings, and we're all energy, I Anything that can be done, even in the smallest of ways, is Yeah, absolutely. I'm losing you a little bit now, Pamela. Did anything happen? It's almost like I heard a crackle and your voice went really low and started to break up. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that any better? Oh, yes. That's much better. Okay. Yeah, much better. Thank you. Yeah. I think I shifted in my chair my microphone that our hat on my buds moved <laughs> ah right <laughs> yeah no that's that's great again yeah and that's what i you know because my my horse um one particular horse my andalusian i talk about him a lot and he he taught me so much he was definitely a gift from god <laughs> as i said in the tribute to him that i wrote and absolutely instrumental in me being where i am today and you know, our animals are so precious. And I do believe, as you say, that they are soul family as well as, you know, physical family. And to have somewhere to be able to really record the contribution that they've made to our lives. Um, you know, I really like the idea and I'm glad other people like it, too. So <laughs> I would better get busy on that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, I know that there are even some ministers that do um, ceremonies for memorial services for dogs or for mm -hmm. their pets. Um, there, I know there's a, a, a couple that, that do that here in my local area. I have not attended any of those, 
but there is definitely a need for more and more services like that. Yeah, because that's interesting. You know, it brings up the point of some of these religions claiming that animals don't have souls. And to me, it's like, are you blind? <laughs> you know, that that this whole idea that animals don't have emotions, for example. And um I remember reading something that I think it was, was it Descartes or one of the philosophies that where it was the origin of this um this belief that animals don't have souls, which was then it then became a justification for the way that animals are treated so often, you know, especially animals for food, where there is no honoring of the the animal themselves as there is in Native American culture. You know, in my my understanding is that when the Native Americans would hunt an animal, they would ask permission to take that animal's life for food. Whereas there is so much inhumanity in in the food industry and the way that animals are kept and treated that, you know, is just the only way you can excuse that is by justifying no emotions, no soul. But that is not the true nature of animals at all. Yeah, I agree with that. And especially when you see the difference between animals that are raised humanely and killed humanely and fed, you know, organic food and not having the that antibiotics. Um, you know, I tried being vegan and I just couldn't do it. I just need some of the animal in there. But I certainly have noticed a difference in my own physical health of having animals that have been treated humanely versus ones that haven't, my energy isn't as good. Mm, yes, because you're picking up the energy of the suffering. Yes, and not only that, if you're having an inhumane practice on the slaughtering, what gets released in their, their the muscles and their tissues is the the same toxin as the, the fear and the flight. Mm, yes. And you are actually ingesting that into your body or eating fear. And, and you know, if, I really wish I could not eat animal meat because I would be so much happier. <laughs> well, I must say I'm the same philosophically. You know, I'd love to be a vegetarian or even a vegan, but I just find that I end up with a craving for meat. And it's interesting because I've been introduced to this theory about um the, your diet linked to your blood group and yes. I'm an A blood group and according to that theory I should be more drawn to vegetarianism than other blood groups but it's not it's like no I need meat you know but I I do like you you know I I get pasture raised um beef for example I buy pasture raised um eggs and try and uh, make sure that I'm what I'm buying is from humane uh, treatment. And also, I mean, you know, driving through the US, as I did, you know, we did long road trips back in 2010 and, and driving past these feedlots, you know, it was just horrendous. All these animals crammed in together, you know, uh, compared with the 
the natural way of being out at pasture, you know, and <laughs> eating what they're meant to eat instead of being stuffed full of grain to get short term um, results from these animals you know and i recently bought it was my christmas present to myself <laughs> a book by a local vet actually who is a holistic vet and it's called the spiritual nature of animals and i'm only just into the first chapter or so of it at the moment but she's looking at how the different religions approach animals and her experience working with animals as a vet and you know the more that we can really communicate this to people i'm not saying that everybody is going to turn vegetarian as you as you were saying i'm i am very torn you know, in terms of from an ethical point of view, wanting to not put animals through this. But uh, as I say, it just hasn't been hasn't worked out for me to, to become vegetarian. Right. So mm. <laughs> the other thing that I do also is I actually Reiki my food and bless it mm. before I eat. I and that's just become a part of my lifestyle and again it's really about being conscious and honoring the animal that that was its soul contract was to provide you the food and to bless that so that when you give the reiki to it it removes any of that negative energy from mm. it by yes. giving it positive energy and then that's what you then ingest Mm, yes, I do the same, actually. I do. I have to confess, I do forget sometimes, but I do try to do that as well and, and give thanks for those, you know, that my what I say is, you know, and, and give thanks to those who's who gave up their life so we could eat kind of thing. So, yes, yes. yes. Well, absolutely. I also follow that up with thanking Mother Earth for providing all of our food for us. And I also thank the plants. Because mm. the plants are also living things, and they have a consciousness as well. So I just try to be very, very conscious with every, and I, I'm not, you know, 100% every second of the day, but I try to be as very conscious in my living and my life and what I ingest as well. But, mm. you know, I have my moments where I don't, but I, I try to be very, very consistent and regular in that practice. I find that it's, gives us a sacredness to a much more sacred feeling to all of life and all of life's forms. Yes. It is integrating it all as I was saying earlier. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, obviously with these ceremonies that you do, they are, um, you know, you have to be physically present there unlike other things, which presumably you can do from a distance. Can you not? Um, for the most part, yes. I like to be physically there for the ceremony, although with technology, I think there are ways that we could do some of them from a distance. Mm -hmm. For example, when I have wedding ceremonies, frequently there might be relatives who are somewhere across the world or across the country, or maybe they're in the hospital and they can't be there. So we will Skype in or FaceTime in members of the family that can't physically be present. Oh, what a great idea. 
And there is also a part in the ceremony that sometimes we give honor to those who physically can't be there, whether they have passed on or if they just can't be there. We invite their energy into the ceremony. Mm. And so there are things that can be done. And something that I'm actually exploring is I've been talking with someone who is an attorney who is coming up with the concept of doing weddings online and she is working out the legal aspect with the paperwork and I can be in one place and the couple can be in another and through Skype or Zoom or whatever technology platform she's going to be using, I can still conduct the ceremony from wherever I'm at and they are and it is still legally binding union. Interesting. It took me a while to come to terms with that and and say, could I really do this? But I thought I've already opened the gateway by allowing family members to attend through Skype. Mm. So why wouldn't I open to this if it's you know been worked out legally and everything? And so I'm still working through this, but it's something I will probably start doing next month and I've decided I'm going to give it a year and then revisit how I feel about it after I've given it a try. Mm, Interesting. Because I know there are certain legalities over documents now that are transmitted electronically. I don't know if it's still the case, but a fax was accepted as a legal document that had been signed and faxed, but yet you couldn't use email. <laughs> right. you know, it's an attachment. So I don't know whether the law has really caught up with the change in technology these days. Right. Well, like I said, I'm more, the person who has developed this is an attorney. And so she is definitely working the legal aspect of this. Um, she's working it so that the licensing will come through Washington, D.C., and they are a proxy state. Mm-hmm. And I have already been credentialed through Washington, D.C. to officiate ceremonies there. So I really don't think there's going to be a problem with this. Mm. Oh, and good. so I'm actually kind of excited about the fact that technology is bringing families together and could even bring together a couple where one person that might, for example, maybe one spouse is in the military and then the other person is still here in the States, I believe I would be able to bring them together through the use of technology. Wow. So even the couple aren't together at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, that wouldn't be my most ideal setup, but I believe that this service is being worked out that it would be legal with them. And again, it's because it's through an attorney Mm. that, that this is doing it. I wouldn't just go this, I wouldn't do this on my own (laughs) (laughs) or through somebody else. But I believe that if we can use technology to our advantage to really serve someone, why not? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, still within the subject of rituals and ceremonies, you also do a variety of releasing rituals as well. Do you want to talk about those for a minute? Absolutely. You know, we it's kind of like when you clean house, you just feel better and energetically your house feels better. Well, 
it's true. Our bodies are a temple and they're like a house and we get energy that are stuck in it and we get patterns that are stuck. And in order for us to sometimes move forward, we need to do a little bit of inner clearing and inner work ourselves. And so I like to do ceremonies and rituals that will facilitate and assist that process in happening. Um, there are different, many, many different ways that you can do it. One of my favorite ones is to do a burning bowl ceremony. And it's a very simple, easy thing that you can do. Um, basically, a person or a group of people can go into a meditation and ask their inner selves what it is that they need to release and what no longer size serves their highest and best interest then they physically write it out on a piece of paper. So this is your first action and step of getting it out of your cellular memory, out of your body by transferring it onto the paper. And this is a good place to actually write something that you perceive as being negative because you're, we're transmuting, transmuting the energy. The next step would be to put it into a sacred fire, which can come into many different ways. Until I got a fire pit, my, my sacred fire was a, a, a Dutch oven iron pot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and you would put it on fire and then put it into the bowl and then let it come from, be fully consumed by the fire. And then once you have that ash, then you take the ash and you bury it in the earth and return it back to creator, back to source. It's very, very easy, very simple, very, very inexpensive extremely effective mm. um, and it can be done anywhere personally you know I do it on my back patio and then I have a angel statue in my garden that I lift her up put the ashes and bury them in the ground and then put her back on that so she's still holding that energy for that process to, to go mm. um, and I find it to be very effective and I do that annually with our church in a, a ceremony that our whole church does at the same time, but I also do it individually whenever I need to and um, has been very effective. And one of the things that we do in church is the whole idea is that, is that when you release it and you get rid of it, you can't pick it back up. You have to let it completely go and not come back to it. And when you burn it, the ashes, are, you know, returning it and changing it into positive energy and giving it back to source. But the smoke carries the prayers up to, to creator, which is one of the Native American principles, is that when you have the smoke and from your sacred fire, then your prayers are carried up to creator and to heaven. Mm. And does this combine at all with moon rituals? Because I know that's something else that you do. Is there any value in timing these rituals with the phases of the moon? Oh, absolutely. You can do them at any time, but the the two strongest times to do a releasing ritual like this would be with the new moon or the full moon. 
And for me, I really like doing it with the new moon when the dark, when there is no visual of the moon, because that's the perfect time to look at your shadow work and your shadow side of yourself and see what needs to, to be transmuted or transformed. And that is a powerful time for releasing and creating that open space so that once the full moon comes, then you can manifest and take forward um what you want to take into action. It's almost kind of like the same concept. You, In order to grow a plant, you have to put it into the ground where it's dark and you give it some water, you give it some light, then it grows and then it turns into a, a sapling or a seedling. Then it turns into the plant or tree. Then it bears fruit and harvest. Then it sheds and then it either goes into dormancy or it dies off and then the whole cycle starts again. And that's the same premise with the with the moon release and doing any kind of release work, if that makes sense. Mm, yes, absolutely, it does, yeah. yeah. Um, the other, another of the rituals you do is cord cutting. And yes. I'm, I've, you know, often been told, you know, need to cut your cords, et cetera, et cetera. Can you just describe how you go about that? So, you know, I read about certain approaches to this, but I'd love to hear how you would recommend or how you would approach the cord cutting ceremony. Okay, that's fine. I have done cord ceremonies, cutting ceremonies in multiple ways. The first way that I learned how to do it was when I was attending this, a med uh, I was a member of a medicine wheel community and we actually had a ceremony once a year where we did cord cutting. It was usually near the beginning of the year or at the very end of the year. And we would be led through a guided visualization and we would think about energetic cords or hooks that are kind of laid into us from other people or other situations. And you can almost feel when like somebody hooks you into something and you can like feel like this tugging at you. And then all of a sudden you've got this say, maybe you're just feeling drained. Well, it could be because you've got this cord with this person that hasn't of energy that hasn't been released. Um, and I'll kind of give you like the example, you know, like, you look in the pictures of the ocean of like a really, really large creature like a whale, and there's all those little sucker fish cleaning all, cleaning all the stuff off of them. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's kind of what the energetic cords look like. They kind of hook into you. And so you can do that in a variety of different ways. Some people just do it through a guided visualization, but you can also go through guided visualization and think about, feeling and knowing where those cords from and wanting to release them. And you can take a piece of a wood or like a, like a, almost like a magic wand or a, just a stick that has been whittled or not. Um, cedar is very, very effective for this because it's wood that is from the ancestors and you can call your ancestors to help you with this process. And what you would do is you would just go from the top of your head all the way to your feet and you would, Say, I'm releasing the cords from X, Y, Z, whatever the negative situation is or who the person is. And you can do it from everybody that you don't need these attachments to. And then you would just kind of do kind of like a zigzagging um, motion with that. And then after that, then another prayer is done. And then there's usually somebody there that will help kind of 
seal your aura so that now that you've got these openings where these cords were cut, that you've got it sealed so that you're not inviting other negative energies to come in. And sometimes that's done with smudge or sage that is, is a type of plant that's been dried and then you light it and then that smoke is part of what does it. And then I've also seen people do some energetic, sort of like Reiki healing to help close up the chakras and, and help seal your aura so that you've got that barrier. I've also done cord cutting with a quartz crystal with one that's a very, very large point, and you would use the crystal just the same way that you would use the the, the, the wood, and that can do it. You can also do, you could even do a, a bath with Epsom salts, and that will also help clear the aura and help to release those, those cords that are within you. But the main thing is the intention and then the physical act of having that cutting motion. I've even had people use their hand, and I know that in um, Donna Eden's Energy Medicine and Barbara Brenna's Hands of Light, you can often cut the energy that way. And when I finish with a Reiki session, I actually do a form of a cord cutting with my hand with a Reiki symbol so that it disconnects my energy from that person that I've just been healing. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't yeah. come across that before, that that when you're healing, you can create an attachment there? Yeah, it, well, because when you're doing energetic healing with someone, you're in their energy space and you're within one or two inches of their body or hands-on body, and so you have merged energy with that person's, the two inter- energy fields have merged together during that healing time and plus during Reiki you open yourself to the healing guides of the creator sends down and through the Reiki system you don't do it you just open yourself to be a vehicle for which spirit to move through you to help with the healing of the person and so it's very very important that when you finish that healing work that you fully disconnect with that person so that you're not getting anything else from them and you're not giving anything to them yeah, and I guess that's important, isn't it? Because I know, you know, healers can actually end up taking on some of the negative energy of the person that they're working with. Absolutely. So energy, it's really good for people who are energy healers, you know, to ground themselves before they start working on someone and then to disconnect. But I think it's also really good to um, do this cord cutting on a regular basis to maintain your health. And you can even cut cords from like your your spouse or somebody in your family because in family dynamics, you have this like main thread that nothing can cut that, but you also get these little tiny hooks. And that's why I was using the, the analogy of the little sucker fish. No matter who you're in a relationship with, you're gonna have positive and negative things that are going to affect your energy and you don't want anything there that doesn't need to be there. Mm. Yes, absolutely. So one of the other rituals I know you do um, is the white stone ritual. I wasn't, I'm not really familiar with that. So I'd love to hear more about that before we finish oh, today's sure. show. Okay. The white stone ritual is something that 
is um, primarily done in Unity churches now, and they usually do it at the beginning of the year. The Unity churches do a burning bowl ceremony the weekend closest to New Year's. And then the following week, they follow with the Whitestone ceremony. And this goes back into the days of, of Jesus and, and predates him. And what it was was when people were slaves, and they were prisoned and they released, they don't they didn't have the written documentation that we have now to show that they're free. So they were given a white stone so that if anybody stopped them and questioned them, they would have some way to prove that they were free. Mm, interesting. <laughs> and so it has morphed into a thing of now using the stone as a way to be a reminder of the freedom that we've given ourselves by that release that we had from the burning bowl ceremony. Really, you know, the free, and we had each day is a brand new day and we have freedom and we are free each day to create a meaningful, healthy, positive, healthy life. And the white stone ceremony, the way that we do it at the, the church now is we go into a guided visualization and we ask creator to give us a name or it could be a phrase or a description and it's a sacred name and it is written on and then we write that on the stone we have sharpie markers and if somebody doesn't like a stone if they like a river stone they can do it on there and once you get this name that is something that is supposed to help you with your spiritual journey for the entire year and sometimes you might get a symbol, sometimes it's a word, sometimes it's a phrase, and sometimes people don't understand. Sometimes it might be in a, a foreign language. And so part of the whole journey is getting familiar about every characteristic and aspect of this name on the stone to help you with your spiritual journey throughout the year. And then for those that do this ritual annually, they kind of build upon each other and kind of work with the energy from the year before. And it's a really just nice visual way to, again, have supportive energy from one, the stone, and two, from creator by having this, this name or this phrase that is given to you to help you with your spiritual journey. Mm, and I guess you, you, you can almost build a history, can you, from keeping these stones from one year to the next and go, oh, yeah, in you know, 2000 and whatever, I was working on this and then I moved to this and almost like tracing the path over the years. Yes, I have every stone that I have done on my altar and they do definitely build upon each other. And I've almost got a little tiny wall now <laughs> because I've done so many of them. But um, it's been interesting because I've had I've had names, I've had phrases. Sometimes I just got a symbol. Every possible thing that you could get on a white stone, I've had it. I even had one year where it was blank and then throughout the year in meditation, God would just kind of say, you need to write this one down and put it on your stone. I'm like, Okay, because the stone has six sides, and so <laughs> there's the possibility of having six different words. <laughs> mm, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit complex then, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's usually not like that, though. I usually only get a couple of words, but, you know, I'm one of these people. I just can't do the Reader's Digest of anything very rarely. <laughs> so 
<laughs> it works for me. But it has been a very powerful thing. And, and, it's, and they're nice and smooth. You can hold them like a worry stone in your hand. Or you can pray with them. Or you can carry them in your pocket. I've had years where the um, marker either wore off or faded or the oils covered it over. And the word was no, no longer even visible because I was able to take this wherever I went. Mm. And I used it. And it's just that remember, and, and with it being white, it's that remember that each day is a clean slate, and you have the choice how the picture is going to look at the end of the day. Absolutely, through your, the power of your intention. Yes, and, you know, that's the, that's the beauty of everything that I've worked with is being about conscious, using intention, and using everyday objects to, make, to bring meaning into your life so that you do live Monday through Sunday instead of just Sunday. Yes, absolutely. And interestingly, you know, part of my learning over the past, what, 10 years or so has been really coming to the recognition of consciousness being in everything. And, you know, you were saying earlier about the food, about how this consciousness implants. And I've, I've really felt that not, not with all trees, but with certain trees, and even stones, I've been feeling this vibration in the stone. And I guess what you're doing again is you're really connecting with the energy of the stones and anchoring that um, intention for the year or that curriculum for the year with etching yes. the word on it. Absolutely. And I, I encourage people to let the stones choose them. I usually ask them to not look when they put their hand into the basket and to put their hand in there and kind of feel around to feel which one calls to them. And that's the thing I really like about doing stones when you're not having the white stones because they're so different. And if they have imperfections in them, that helps be a metaphor and a mirror for our life. Mm, and to not, judge the stone by its cover because the energy that it's bringing you and helping you with could be really, really amazing. It could be the most god-awful, ugly-looking thing and be the most treasured piece you have. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> and, what, and what is ugly anyway other than a judgment? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we haven't even got through all of the things you do, Pamela. I mean, you've got so many wonderful things to offer the world. What would you say, have you got any favorites in terms of what you like to do the most? Hmm. I like them all. <laughs> I really like doing the, the meditative painting and artwork and, and the Reiki. I think because they're just things that I can apply to everyday life and every person and every relationship, just about everything. And they really help me to be present and to really be conscious. Mm. And we haven't actually talked very much about your Reiki. You've mentioned how you've used it in various circumstances and including the the memorial services and, and, and weddings and so on. What drew you to actually becoming a Reiki master? I went to a Reiki class. Um, it was actually, the concept was introduced to me by my second ex-husband. And he, and he had 
known the person who was teaching the Reiki class and he had had Reiki sessions with her and it helped him to calm down and to do some energetic healing. And when he described it to me, it was very fascinating. So we took a class together so that we would have something in common as a couple to do. And I just really resonated it. I liked it that I just started incorporating this into my life and it is a way of living. It's, it's, it's one of many different ways of healing and, and living your life, but it really is a, a change in your mindset and a change in the way you live your life. And I think that was probably one of the biggest draws to me was the fact that it was a life changing and life altering. And it's something that everybody has access to. It's just a matter of being open to that ability and how to use the energy of it in different situations. Mm. And, and sorry, go on, Pamela. And it's it's an Eastern tradition, and it, it was so mo- beautifully modeled by Jesus. Even though it, nobody says Jesus is a Reiki master, but you know the the things that he did was people were healed by the faith that they had in his healing with him, and when he would touch them. Mm. And it's really the same thing with Reiki: is you're opening up to God's grace and the healing abilities to work through you. And then it also helps the other person, but it's even more powerful when they are open and embracing of that concept, healing through faith that this person is helping. Mm. And that's what I like about it. And the fact that everybody has the power to do it. Yes, wonderful. Um, We've only got a couple of minutes left of the show. (laughs) Hard as it is to believe. Um, So before we run out of time, Pamela, please share your information again and also where you're located for those people that would like to uh, experience what you do in person. Okay. I live in Fredericksburg, Virginia, which is 50 miles south of Washington, D.C. and 50 miles north of Richmond. And my website is PamelaAMan.com. And my weddings and ceremonies website is HeartStarCeremonies.com. And I have Facebook pages with those as well. And then my email is Pamela at PamelaAMan.com. And you can catch me on Facebook or any of those ways. Lovely. Thank you. And what I love so much in how, what we talked about today, Pamela, is how, you know, you've, as I say, you've got so much to offer in terms of the, the ceremonies, the rituals, the meditations, everything. But what I love is how you've described how you integrate these things together. And I think that is, um, you know, really a philosophy, isn't it, about pulling everything together so you can really apply it in your life so so i really appreciate you being on the show um thank you so much and um i will now wind up the show if you want to just say a quick bye-bye pamela all right thank you so much for having me on this show i appreciate it and i look forward to journeying further along with you Lovely. Yes, me too. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, It's Jan Moore, the Success Alchemist, signing off from the Cosmic Creating Show. And if you'd like to know more about what I do in terms of helping people fulfill their purpose and live to their highest potential, you can find me at thesuccessalchemist.net. So thank you. And back over to you, Nancy, to wind things up. Thank you for producing as 
You have been listening to the Cosmic Creating Radio Show with Jay Moore, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. Live long and prosper. You are listening to the Cosmic Reality Radio Station, playing shows from the current week in the hopes you'll take a listen, find something interesting, maybe informative, and maybe inspiring. Thank you for being here. Be safe.